on the Legal Economic Nexus podcast, Michigan State University institutional economists Eric Scorzoni and Sarah Klammer explore the work of heterodox and institutional economists. Institutional approaches to economics have a long history going back over a century, but are becoming even more prevalent since the trauma of the Great Recession, global financial crisis, and now the COVID-19 pandemic. We will be interviewing current thinkers from the fields of economics and the law to gain insights into important new research, approaches, and tools to understand the economy. Welcome to the Legal Economic Nexus podcast. This is episode two. Today we have Mary Wren with us from the University of the West of England. Mary, welcome. Thank you. So I wanted to start today with a question more about your career and kind of how you came where you were. How did you end up becoming an institutional economist in, in that area? That's a complicated question. <laughs> During my undergraduate years, I studied economics and education. And my undergraduate university was really orthodox, mainstream, very mathematical. So in my fourth year, I went back to my undergraduate teachers and I talked to them about graduate school. And I said, you know, I'm really, I'm interested in doing more economics, but I'm also really interested in politics. And so I'd like to study political economy. Is that like a thing? And my mentor through those years, he said, well, you could do that, but I think there are only a couple, maybe three, graduate programs in the United States that offer that kind of degree, and you'll never be able to get a job if you go that route. You should get a master's in math and then, you know, decide if you want to do a PhD. And at that point, I decided, well, you know, I know how to teach high school at this point. (laughs) So why don't I just go to graduate school and study whatever the hell I want? And if I don't get a job, I can always go back to teaching high school, (laughs) you know. So I got on the internet and just looked for graduate schools that had some combination of political, political studies and economic studies. And that led me to Colorado State. And so I became an institutionalist uh, sort of by accident. I was looking for political economy in a graduate program but not specifically institutionalism. But so I remember looking at the internet and I was particularly intrigued with the work of Ron Stanfield and what I had read about his work on Colorado State's website. And so not knowing that it was institutionalism proper, you know, just saying, oh, that looks interesting. I decided to go there. So... (laughs) Yeah, I had never heard of heterodox or institutionalism before that. So it's, uh, I feel kind of lucky that I found it, you know. Right. That's great. I, I'm curious because I know um, in your bio, it talks about, you know, your move to England and the Joan Robinson Fellowship and how important that was to your career. Could you kind of give us a sense of how that came about and how you feel that's shaped you from that time forward? Sure. That. <laughs> I still can't quite believe that I was the Joan Robinson Research Fellow in Heterodox Economics. It still seems kind of unreal to me. I had been teaching in the U.S. for a while. I was six or seven years out of graduate school. 
So I was still early career. And the email for the Joan Robinson Fellowship popped up in my inbox. And I must have deleted it and put it back in my inbox about three or four times. And I was pretty unhappy at my current place of employment. And we can talk about that in a bit if you want, but it's, it can be very lonely when you are the only heterodox person in your department. So um, I, was, I was the only heterodox person and I was looking for something to do for my sabbatical year. I wanted to get away from my university. I wanted to go someplace. And so one Saturday night, I basically just pounded out uh, my application for it and uh, mailed it off, not expecting anything at all, and um, somehow ended up there. And what's funny, it was an it was an incredibly scary decision to make uh, once I was awarded the fellowship because I had literally just gotten tenure like that month. <laughs> I had just been promoted. <laughs> And so, you know, I'm sitting there thinking, God, do I really want to give this up to move to a different country and take about a third of what I was getting paid at that moment? I mean, that fellowship did not pay at all. (laughs) It was very low pay. (laughs) You know, do I want to do this? And so I worked it out with my university and and they let me take a a year of leave without pay, and then my sabbatical. So I got to try it out. I was very lucky in that regard uh, to try it out for a couple of years. And first year was very tough because the UK higher ed system is just insanely different uh, from the US higher ed system. And it was very, it was just very strange. But once I, once I got my feet underneath me, I fell in love and, and I just said, yeah, this is what I want to do. So I, it was still scary <laughs> to tell my old place of employment. Thank you for the tenure. I think I'm going to leave. But yeah, it it, uh, it was incredibly scary, but also one of the best decisions I've ever made because my time there allowed me to really expand my thinking, expand my research in ways that I had wanted to do, but I didn't have the time to do. I didn't have, you know, the the resources readily available for me to do it. And so I was able to really stretch my legs and and try try some new areas of research that I'm still, you know, exploring today. And it was also an environment that um, so I was a research fellow at the college at Girton College. Um, so I didn't have anything to do with the faculty in economics, which is very mainstream, is very far away. Keynes would not recognize that faculty if he were to come back. So I didn't have anything to do with them, but within my college, for instance, we would go to lunch every day together. The fellows ate lunch together. And there was a rule that you you would sit down in the order that you came in uh, to the dining area. So it meant that you always would, you know, you would just take the next empty seat. And that meant that you sat next to somebody or across from somebody different every day. And so that was really critical because I got to know a lot of people outside my discipline. 
And as a heterodox economist, that's absolutely critical. But I got to talk to all of these different people, all of these different experts in their subject areas. And that gave me a lot of different ideas, how to approach my research. Uh, We were always recommending different things to read to each other. So it was really, that fellowship is, I think, probably what I miss the most. Cambridge also has a very small, very small group of heterodox economists. That's who put together the the fellowship. And they have um, a workshop every two weeks during term time. And we would also meet two hours a week, every week, to talk about different topics related to ontology, which is something I had actually studied before I um, before I moved to England. So that really helped to strengthen and fortify my understanding of, of topics that I had already started working on. So it was, it was, it was yeah, it, it was critical in the early part of my career, I'd say, for sure. Yeah, that's fascinating. Um, could you talk a little bit, could we pick up on the thread about your previous employer and how you felt isolated and you know, I guess for younger economists who are trying to get into this area, you know, how that played out for you and what the challenges. Yeah, absolutely. Most heterodox economists, when they go out onto the job market, you're going to be in departments where you you are one of the lone heterodox voices. And that's usually because they, the economics department wants to give a nod toward interdisciplinarity uh, without actually doing is interdisciplinary research. And so you are, in some ways, in some ways, a, a token interdisciplinary person. And this meant that at that job, I was really isolated. I felt like I couldn't talk to my colleagues within the economics department about my research. And I think I would have been okay with that, except that some of my colleagues in that department really took offense to the fact that I was heterodox and they became quite defensive of what they had studied and and what they were teaching and what they were researching. And that their own insecurity and their own defensiveness meant that they created a very tense and very, I don't know how to say it. There was a lot of animosity there that I, I you know, I was like, I, I, you could be right. You could, as a mainstream person, be absolutely right. And I could be completely full of shit. I don't know the truth. All I'm saying is I'm going to look at this instead of what you're looking at. And let's just live in peace. We don't have to, we don't have to interact. <laughs> we just need to coexist. And they did not see that as the case. And so that made it, it quite difficult, quite difficult for me. The one thing that saved me was going to conferences, in particular, going to the AFIT conference, the Association for Institutional Thought, and uh, going to the January conferences where I could meet people and, you know, we could, it felt like I was able to speak my native language with them. Like I could go and we could talk about the ideas that I was interested in. And I would always come back from those conferences really energized and ready to do research and ready to think about what I wanted to say in a way that I didn't get from interacting with my colleagues. So 
if you are a heterodox economist and you do end up in that position, it's really critical that you reach out and are active in building your own heterodox community that can that can see you through those times when you're not going to have those conversations going uh, with your colleagues. You know, I've got lots of advice for young heterodox people, <laughs> but that's probably one of the best ones. And the piece of advice that my uh, advisor gave me with respect to conferences, and he was absolutely correct on this, was that the real work at conferences happens in the hallways, not in the sessions. And he was absolutely right, because as the lone heterodox person, you know, getting to know people out in the hallways, getting to talk to people, getting to um, just to know them on a personal level was what helped me build that community. So I, I recommend that hanging out in the hallways. I mean, go to a couple of sessions, but don't feel like you have to <laughs> go to all of them. <laughs> That's great advice, yes. Yeah. And if you see me at a conference, come up and talk to me because I, I, I love talking to um, new people and you're probably saving me from a conversation with someone I'm trying to escape. So <laughs> <laughs> go, go and find me. I'm kidding. I'm kidding. Yeah. I love all my colleagues. I love all my heterodox community. <laughs> yes, right. <laughs> that's, no, that's great advice. Thank you. I'd like to turn to some of your work. So, and and a couple quick things. So, uh, can you give us a thumbnail sketch of neoliberalism as you understand it? And I'm also curious about your thinking on under the Trump and Boris Johnson years. If we've seen a different form of neoliberalism or just more of the same, and maybe if you have any thoughts on that. Oh boy, I have lots of thoughts on that. Okay, uh, thumbnail sketch of neoliberalism. Oh, God, I don't know how to sum it up quickly. Neoliberalism is, is, I think, a reconfiguration of classical liberalism that we saw at the early part of the 20th century. Neoliberalism, though, is, is fundamentally different from classical liberalism because the rhetoric of neoliberalism, the ideological rhetoric, doesn't match the actual actions and reality, material reality that we see. So for instance, the three trademarks, I guess you could say, of neoliberalism are privatization, deregulation, and uh, the retrenchment of the welfare state, at least for me, in my work. Those are the, the three that I, I um, cite. And if we look at deregulation, deregulation is uh, this idea that business interests want as little regulation as possible, but that's not actually the case. Okay? Ideologically, that's what is repeated in the media. That's what that's sort of the logic that we're presented with that they want deregulation, but that's not actually the case. Well, the case is that they actually want protection from the market setting through regulations that are supportive of what they do. So they want or need aggregate demand stimulation. They need government bailouts. They need government regulation that is going to help them to operate in a very specific way. And so deregulation is not actually, you know, in the classical liberal sense of the word, is not actually what business interests want. The same thing with privatization. They don't Business interests don't want uh, the government to privatize everything. What they want is for the government to contract out to the private sector. 
And so that way they get those sweet, sweet government contracts without having to actually, you know, worry about operating as a, a business independently within the private sector. So they still get that government support. And government likes this uh, to a certain degree because it looks like, you know, it looks like you're letting the market take control. But it also, because the way that uh, the legal infrastructure has has been set up, it also provides cover. So government action has to be uh to varying degrees, transparent. But if you contract out to the private sector, that private corporation is covered um, by the right to privacy and the Fourth Amendment. And so they do not have to disclose their operational practices because that is covered under that Fourth Amendment right to privacy. And so they don't you know, have to release any proprietary information. So it works all around for, for both government and for business interests. And then retrenchment of the welfare state actually is not total pulling back on, re, on welfare, but it's designing welfare so that it defrays labor costs for business interests. And it also ensures that they have a continuous pool of economically precarious um, people that they could hire or fire. So it's a very different animal than classical liberalism in the purest sense, but it uses that framing and that those rhetorical devices in, in order to uh, perpetuate their ideology and to give them this veneer of working with the free market through legislative lobbying, for instance. So. I could talk for hours about neoliberalism, so I'm I'm really sorry, but I forgot the rest of the question. <laughs> oh, Trump, Trump, yeah. Trump. Yeah, what I think we've seen with Trump and with Boris Johnson, and I am unlucky enough to live under both regimes at the same time, but I, I think what what we see is neoliberal business as usual. Okay. Within Trump's first 30 days of an office uh, back in 2016, he did away with over 90 regulations through executive orders. Okay. So, I mean, clearly these are neoliberal type tendencies. His putting into administrative posts, into cabinet posts of people who were antithetical <laughs> to the department that they were supposed to be running, uh, that demonstrates that uh, he doesn't really care about the public provision. I mean, putting Betsy DeVos in, term, in, in charge of education, what the hell? I mean, this is a person who is who wants the state entirely out of the educational system to begin with. So, that appointment never made sense. So you can see, once you strip away all of the melodrama and all of the theater that both of these gentlemen have, I mean, Boris acts like the affable buffoon and it gives him a lot of cover. So, so once you strip that away, you can see, you can see very clearly the neoliberal policy directions that both of these uh, both of these men have taken. So it's <laughs> Trump might be, yeah, uh, an anomaly in terms of who we've had in the White House aesthetically, but in terms of politics, he's absolutely consistent with what we've had before or what we've had since since Reagan. 
So. Okay. Interesting. Yeah. yeah. I want to talk about something. I actually first came across your work. I think it was on YouTube. You were talking about the prosperity gospel and uh, I think it was an interview. Mm -hmm. I read that article. It's really interesting. And I wonder if we can dive in a little bit to it and how, how you saw this actual, you know, aspect of religion where they're actually reinforcing the neoliberal agenda and kind of how people get shaped by that. Could you talk a little bit about, I'm curious how you, how you decided to think about that issue and then kind of how you see that playing out. Oh, that's wow. Yeah. I can talk for hours about this too. The prosperity gospel is something that I was around me culturally. Um, my parents weren't part of this. But uh, I did, growing up in North Carolina, that is also the home base for Jim and Tammy Faye Baker. And so growing up, you know, <laughs> you see, first of all, you know, friends whose families are, are donating to the PTL, Praise the Lord Network, which is their network. And there's always a channel, whether you have cable or not, that can get those um uh, broadcasts. And then, you know, in the 80s, when when he had all of Jim Baker had all of the financial malfeasance uh, suits against him. You know, it was a part of my growing up. It was background noise in my growing up. So I've always been interested in it. And I ran across a book by Kate Bowler, who's at Duke. And she wrote about the history of the prosperity gospel. And so I read that book, like, oh, the things that these people are saying directly echo the rhetoric that we hear out of neoliberalism. There is something here. I've got to explore this. And a few years before, I had started my work on emotions. I had started with fear, and then I wrote a paper on envy. And then I read this book and thought, this is really tapping into American optimism. You know, Americans, that's part of the American mythology, self-mythology, is that we have rugged individualism and we always have the potential for reinvention. Okay, so I saw the prosperity gospel as sort of fitting in roughly with that, that seemingly unabatable <laughs> sense of optimism of Americans. And so originally, since I'm an institutionalist, I said, okay, neoliberalism is my frame. Uh, neoliberalism within the United States, that's my frame. Uh, I want to study this American optimism. One of the institutions I'm going to study, use to study that within that frame is the prosperity gospel. I need to also find something else. You know, I wanted to do a comparison of a couple of different institutions and see if there is um, any anything connecting them in neoliberalism. So I had decided on the prosperity gospel and mindfulness in the workplace. And so I started writing this paper and it was over the summer. And at the end of the summer, I said, oh, my God, this is too much material for one paper. <laughs> it was going to be one paper, but no, <laughs> it actually, I had to then separate them. And then the prosperity gospel paper got so large that I actually had to split it up into different topics. So I really got hooked on uh, this idea of optimism 
And so now I'm just going through institution after institution. I've done mindfulness. I'm working on uh, currently MLMs, multi-level marketing schemes. And I'm finding that all of them have the same current of rhetoric running through them and that that current of rhetoric matches very closely to the neoliberal rhetoric. This idea of individualism, of responsibility, of personal ambition, it all runs through. It's a connective uh, red thread that runs through all of these different institutions within neoliberalism. And so they end up being reinforcing institutions for neoliberalism. And the prosperity gospel, like I said, I started with that because, you know, it was the background noise of my in my growing up in North Carolina. And it's really remarkable how much the theological framing reinforces neoliberalism. So it's very much, uh, if you don't have financial success, that is because you haven't, you haven't believed enough. You haven't claimed that prosperity for yourself. Your faith is not strong enough. Just like in neoliberalism, where if you're not financially successful, that is because you have not tried hard enough. You have not been ambitious enough. You, the whole of hustle culture, I mean, it really sort of embodies uh, that neoliberal drive uh, and that neoliberal assignment of individual responsibility for your financial success. You know, get that bread. <laughs> Rise and shine, hustle culture, uh, just I, none of the slogans are coming to my head right now, but that's what I mean. <laughs> and that is replicated within the prosperity gospel itself. And so that's what made it so fascinating uh, to me. And also theology within prosperity gospel, it does, the internal logic of it does make a lot of sense. It's only when you look at it within the economic larger economic landscape that you see that it is all built on on sand essentially so oh, interesting yeah. yeah that's very very interesting i wanted to tie in a couple kind of key institutional ideas and see how you kind of define those for for our audience two being um the two i mentioned that you mm-hmm. use are invidious distinction and veblenian waste could you give us an idea like what those are and how you kind of use those concepts in your work? Sure. Invidious distinction. <laughs> this is the idea, the Veblenian idea, that different classes will want to distinguish themselves from the class below them. And so they want to, in some way, especially the leisure class or the upper class, as we would call it today, Veblen called it the leisure class, Uh, especially want to distinguish themselves through conspicuous consumption, through ceremonial uh, rites and rituals, distinguish themselves from the rungs below them. And it is that invidious distinction that motivates those lower classes. So they are trying to distinguish themselves from those that are beneath them by emulating, which is another Babylonian concept, Uh, emulating the class above them. And so it's a way of studying social organization within capitalism. And I think it has a lot of 
explanatory power, even though he wrote about it at the at the, at the beginning of the 20th century. It's remarkable how much uh, staying power his concepts actually have. Veblenian waste is, I like to think of it as a supporting uh, theory to Marx's surplus value idea. It, and it actually, it builds off of, I, um, I wouldn't say it directly builds off of, but you can see the parallels. Yeah, I guess I could say it directly builds off of Marx's work. When Marx talked about the cycle of capitalism and that capitalism uh, has a tendency towards stagnation. Uh, well, Veblenian waste is the idea that um, a business has to continually grow, grow or die within capitalism. That's what business interests have to do, grow or die. They have to continually expand and uh, gain more market share. And if they don't, then they will be swallowed by their competition. That That is the, the ethos of capitalism. And so when you reach that point of stagnation in uh, the capitalist cycle, uh, business interests have nothing to do with their money except to invest it in what Veblen called waste and non-productive ways of spending money. So they can't, they can't expand their productive capacity uh, because of the tendency towards stagnation. They can't invest in more machinery or more infrastructure because that is, you know, the continual threat of stagnation hangs above them. And so they find different ways of trying to grow the empire and that's what Veblen called Veblenian waste. Most recently, we can see that through financial speculation. I mean, that's what many companies will do today. They'll, they'll you know, put uh, that those extra that extra money, that surplus, into financial markets and try to expand their coffers or expand the power of their business or expand their market share or expand whatever through financial speculation. And so that's what the term Veblenian waste means uh, insofar as I use it. It's non-productive activities that um, business interests will engage in in order to uh, continually try to expand. It could be advertising, it could be marketing. Um, I've written a paper where I talk about um, the use of the Veblenian waste in funding lobbyists to try to get business-friendly legislation passed in Congress, all of those would be termed Veblenian waste. Yeah. Oh, so. That's great. Yeah. Very helpful to clarify those ideas. Yeah. Well, that's how, I should say, that's how I use them. Sure. No, sure. <laughs> other, other institutionalists will probably use them in a slightly different way, which is, I think, one of the best things about institutionalism is that we are a pragm pragmatic people. You know? <laughs> <laughs> yes, that's always yeah. good. Yes. Yeah. I wanted to end with a question on, you know, given the events in the last few weeks in the United States in particular, the uh, especially the attack on the Capitol, I'm curious about you've written a lot about fear, about moral panic, which I found very fascinating. Mm -hmm. I'm just wondering how you might think if, if those ideas apply at all and what we're seeing in the United States right now and how people are, how rhetoric has really revved people up, changed social relations. And, and you know, obviously this probably isn't over. We're going to see more um, probably instability, perhaps even. Uh, do you think these, kind of how you've written, how that might apply and what we're seeing today? Sure. I think 
the idea of moral panics we can see in, especially in some of the conspiracy theories from the group QAnon. I think that they're really apparent there. The, the idea of sex trafficking, um, the lore around satanic rituals, the, the lore around pedophilia. I think all of that has some connection to moral panics from the past. Now, typically what happens when we see these moral panics is that we see them pop up like one at a time. What's different, I think, today is that we're getting a lot of them at the same time and that they are interconnected. And what's more, I mean, these conspiracy theories are, they spring out of actual conspiracies that are real, (laughs) right? Like Pizzagate itself, Pizzagate is not real. There's not a a pizza parlor in Washington, D.C. that has child slaves in its basement. That part is not real. But that elites act without uh, accountability, that is real. That um, there are some shady dealings around Epstein, that's real, right? And so I think that the moral panics are, are growing and, and are interconnecting, but I think they are a smaller piece of this larger explosion of conspiracy thinking that uh, we have. And I think all of that conspiracy thinking, and I think uh, a lot of the rage that we see, is connected to uh, people recognizing on some level, it may not be a conscious level, but some level, that the game is rigged, that there's some understanding that the American dream is a lie, that meritocracy is bullshit, and that they are stuck where they are. And I think that is fueled by having a choice between two parties that differ only in their aesthetics and their cultural their cultural choices of issues, their cultural issues, their economics are very close. And I really think that that's the reason that that Trump won in originally in 2016 is that they said, okay, well, we know what we're getting with Clinton. It's more of the same. It's the game's rigged. We know what we're going to get with her. This guy's a wild card. Going to put my money on him because what the hell? don't have anything else to lose. Okay. And, you know, that's the fact that Trump lost. And I'm, I'm really reluctant to comment at length about, you know, the Capitol uh, siege or whatever we're going to call it uh, about Trump's loss, because it, it is in such recent history. And recent events are very, very difficult to understand uh, in their full complexity, because what we see on the surface is never, never, never enough. So I'm reluctant to comment a lot on what's happened just within the past few months, but it it isn't surprising. It isn't surprising when we have a return to the neoliberal Democrat that we had previously, right? And that's what Biden represents. So we're, we're going back to the neoliberal Democrat, the new Democrat, right? That's what we're going to. And so you can see that this frustration, 
you can see that this realization that the game is rigged is starting to express itself in different ways. And it's starting to, uh, just within the past couple of days, the game stock situation uh, just shows that, that people understand that Wall Street is a casino, that the game is rigged when these hedge funds that are losing money have already requested a bailout from the government. Uh, when people are, are talking about ways that this Reddit group can, or, or, or groups like uh, the Reddit group, which have tried to, you know, have upset the balance of power, let's say, in Wall Street, uh, when they're talking about disciplinary measures for that, you can see <laughs> that as a recognition that things are not this reality that has been presented to us. You can see that the average people are starting to understand in a, some fundamental way that there are sources of power that we do not have access to and that we prefer to remain veiled. They prefer to remain behind the scenes. And as long as that remains the case, we are going to continue to see reaction against that. And that reaction against it can be in healthy ways, such as activism that um, doesn't, you know, doesn't involve, uh, you know, guns, <laughs> or it can be expressed in very unhealthy ways, like we saw with the, the capital, uh, whatever we're going to call it, um, capital invasion, capital, whatever. So it's, <laughs> it's, it's a lot to sort of try to take in and, and to think about within the theoretical frames that we have, because we don't have the full information uh, yet. And we don't have enough time, haven't had enough time to really absorb everything and, and to think about it in a, a systematic way. I don't, I, I'm very um, reluctant to use words like fascism, uh, very reluctant to, to use words like terrorism, because those, I think, distract from the understanding that people are just fed up. I think it takes away from the fact that people are starting to recognize that the re rhetoric, uh, that what we're being told does not match their material reality. And the more we have that mismatch, the more we're going to see people trying to explain that mismatch in any terms that they can get their hands on. Okay. And if that takes the form of conspiracy theories, then yeah, uh, that's what they'll gravitate toward. So I think it's a really scary time. And I think that now more than ever, institutionalists have to kind of step up and say, look, your impulse is not wrong. <laughs> like there are structures that in place that are operated by people that you can't see that have more power than you. And yet you're right to be upset, but satanic child sex trafficking is not where it's going, right? There, there's different analysis there. There's different explanations there. So your impulse is not wrong, but let me tell you about the way things really work. Uh, and so I think now more than ever, institutionalists, have a duty to to analyze what's currently going on and have a duty to to make that as accessible to the public as possible and not just write 
you know, to each other um, sure. or to journals and in our esoteric language. So, <laughs> yes, no, that's very illuminating. Thank you. So we want to thank Mary Wren from the University of the West of England joining us on the second episode of the Legal Economic Nexus. Thank you, Mary, so much. Thank you for having me. This was a lot of fun.